Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. And would you stand as I read 12 through 17 of Revelation chapter 2. And hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are sobered and encouraged by the truth that we are welcomed as we are if we would just come. We thank you for the invitation, true extension of your goodwill toward us in Christ, proven by his death and resurrection. We thank you for your word, living and active, sharper, even as it's testified here in this passage, sharper than a double-edged sword, cutting down to the division of bones and marrow and joints, soul, and spirit. Your word cuts us to the quick, and may it do so today. As your spirit takes your word in power to accomplish your will. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, speak to us. May it be the reality today that we know man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So take your word and speak, O God. We look to you. Speak, Father. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. In the 15th century, or 16th century, 17th century, during the age of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, and the movements that grew out of it, I'm not going to try not to camp on a history lesson here, but there's an application. 
That as the Protestant Reformation began to blossom in places like Germany and then in Switzerland and in France and eventually in England and Scotland and nobody wants to talk about Ireland, but it all begins to pop up and it pops up in places like Hungary and Poland. There's a fantastic history of reformational churches that spring up there. And but as these this Protestant faith, the Protestant faith, which hung its hat on Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, to God only be the glory. That, that this Protestant faith that hung its hat on the tenets laid out in Scripture about how we are saved. Faith alone, right? That we've, we're saved by the instrument of faith, trusting in Christ. That faith is a product of God's grace alone. It is not by our work plus grace. It is All of grace. It is according to Scripture. Sola Scriptura. And it is Christ alone who is our mediator. There's one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. And it is all. This whole paradigm of salvation. It is all to the glory of God. As these truths began to root. And people and churches are planting. Planted. All of a sudden there was great Compromise, or better said, great pressure to compromise that were laid on these new and fledgling churches. There were places where this new faith found roots and grew. Places like in Germany with Martin Luther. The church planted and grew because there was, if you will, there was political space. Luther was protected and he was able to do these things. There was room found in Zurich, Zurich, Switzerland, under a man named Zwingli. There's a lot of different vowels and uh, consonants in there. So uh, Heinrich Zwingli, and it was planted in Zurich, and then it was planted in Geneva with John Calvin, and then it went to uh, England with men like Thomas Cranmer in Scotland with John Knox, and we haven't even begun to scrape the surface, okay? Um, but there were places where it didn't take root because the churches were under immense oppression and pressure and persecution. Places like France, where the fledgling Protestant faith found great difficulty finding root because there was no freedom for it to plant. Or somewhere like post-1553 England, with the rise of Mary Tudor, who is better known as Bloody Mary. Under her rule as the Queen of England, somewhere near 300, and if you were to read Fox's Book of Martyrs, which you might have, but you don't have the full thing. I'm just going to say it. Anybody here ever heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs? Ever, do, does anyone own a copy? How many, how many volumes do, is in your copy? One? The original is actually, uh, there's four folio, which is about this size, four folio volumes that chronicle John Fox almost gets all of the Marian martyrs, all of those who die under Bloody Mary. He gets around, I think, 280, and it's almost right at 300 who die because of their faith in the biblical gospel under Bloody Mary. The same is true for the Christians or the, the Protestant Christians in France, that they were persecuted so much that the French Huguenots, which there's a, there's a Huguenot church in, in Charleston that dates from the 17th century, I believe. 
you're, you're thinking, get to the, get out of the history, okay? There's a point. That in both of these places, that both of these places, the, the Christians in those places had a choice. Either they could hold fast to the biblical gospel, confess it, worship according to it, and yield their lives as a seal to the biblical witness, or they could play along with the culture in which they found themselves. For the Protestants under Bloody Mary, they could simply go to the Roman Catholic Mass and they could do what they believed to be blasphemous. And because they did these things, they were just going through the outward motions. Now, there was a great exile of Protestants from England once Edward the... What is he, the sixth? The king before Mary, don't worry about it. Protestant king... Uh, there was a great thousands of people left, but many s- stayed. And they were given a name, those who wanted to play along with the culture at large and not live out their witness, but lived it in secret. Who wanted to live their faith in Christ Jesus, in a biblical gospel, in biblical worship. They wanted to live it in private and in secret. They were called Nicodemites. After Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who came to Jesus at night. Because of the fear of man, he would not come in the day. And he came at night. Now we know about Nicodemus that that was not the end of the story, right? He, he comes by the end of the gospel. He is there with Joseph of Arimathea helping out with Jesus' burial. That we have good reason to believe that Nicodemus eventually left the shadows and stepped into the light of full confessing faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But there is a temptation that sprung up in Marian, England, that sprung up in, the, in France where there was the same term said to those who refused to step into the light because it would cost them their life. A similar pressure fell upon the church at Pergamum This overwhelming pressure to compromise, potentially overwhelming. And dear ones, we are beginning, and I say at the very, 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 very beginning of experiencing a similar pressure to compromise. In Pergamum, Pergamum is a city that's just to the north of Ephesus on what is modern day Turkey. So if you're looking at Turkey on a map, it looks like a, roughly like a rectangle. And on the edge of the Aegean Sea, there's uh, Ephesus is a little, while, little ways inland. And the north of that is Pergamum. And Pergamum was a very, very important, influential city in, in the Roman Empire. But also it was a chief Roman city in Asia Minor, which is the old language for modern day Turkey. It was so central that there in Pergamum, not only were there, was it the seat of many, many pagan festivals. There was this huge altar temple thing to Zeus that was a, it was like 100 feet by 110 feet. It was just absolutely huge depiction of his victory on Mount Olympus. And there were other depictions of pagan deities and their victories. And people were encouraged. And in fact, there were these trade guilds like labor unions, but trade guilds that would 
pick one of these deities, one of these false gods, and they would hold festivals in their honor. And to deny, to say, I'm not going to participate in Athena or Zeus or Hermes or whoever else's festival, not only was it there was a religious ostracism, not only were you cast out religiously, but you were also socially cast out, and you were economically, perhaps most painful of all, you were economically expelled from the community because of their refusal. And this was happening in Pergamum. And not only was Pergamum a center of this pagan worship in Asia Minor, but it was the chief city for what's called the imperial cult. The imperial cult was a, something that rose up in the Roman Empire that was another false religion that said Caesar equals God. And therefore Caesar is due worship as God. And Pergamum was a chief outpost for this, it was from Rome, for this Roman export. And so not only were Christians in Pergamum, where the gospel had come, people had believed upon Jesus, and now they're trying to live out their faith as faithful witnesses to Christ. Not only do they have this pagan pressure from you know, the, the trade guilds and the social pressure, economic pressure, religious pressure, there is also state pressure. Because when you make a mark with the imperial cult and say Caesar is not God, Jesus is Lord, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord, that is inherently, especially for the first century Christians, it was inherently a political statement. It was a forsaking of Caesar as Savior. That the state, in whatever fashion we want to have a government, that the state cannot save No no matter how peaceful the state makes it, no matter how much money the state gives you, the state, and I mean government, whatever, however, I don't just mean like South Carolina state, but I mean like the government, that, that sphere of influence cannot save. And the imperial cult said otherwise, but to cast that out was to cast out, it was a political move against Caesar. So you see the Christians in Pergamum have this, there's this, this bulwark of oppression, a bulwark of opposition that is not static, but is in fact pressing down on them. The two greatest tools that Satan uses in his war against Jesus and his church, which if that's news to you, you need to wake up. Jesus is Jesus and his church are at war with Satan and his minions. We are in the middle of a spiritual war. It does not make Satan of equal power with Jesus. It does not make Satan of equal status with God. It does not mean any of that. But he is rebelling against Christ and his rule over the cosmos. And he has, in such a way, he has welcomed all of the human race into that rebellion. So there is a war that Satan is waging with his cronies, his minions, both spiritual demons and those who would embody his rebellion in people. So that in Pergamum, for an example... In Pergamum, and we'll maybe press into this later on with Re- in Revelation, where the, the, 
The power of the beast is entrusted or to the dragon is entrusted with power and authority that there is a political piece here, political cog in these wheels. So that a state, a government such as the Roman Empire, which throughout much of the book of Revelation, I believe, is referred to as the beast. And we'll get into what I think about the book of Revelation maybe in a few weeks. But that, 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 that they embody, this state embodies, the state that commands or puts pressure on God's people to worship in a way and worship something that is not God and to live out their Christian witness in a way that is, let's just be frank, unbiblical, is at the heart of it embodying or maybe potentially is a pawn of Satan in his war against Jesus and his church. It is, it is a state, it is a government that has forsaken its mandate. That's not the point of this sermon. But the two greatest tools in Satan's armory are external persecution. So if you, if you have the sermon questions there and you see the title or perhaps the bulletin, the, side, the title of this message, right? Um, crushed, corrupted, or conquering. Satan's two greatest implements in his war against Jesus and his church are external persecution and internal compromise and corruption. The way that Satan wars. So where Paul, the apostle Paul tells us, We're not ignorant of his schemes. How does Satan seek to destroy the church? External persecution, raising up, whether it be the Roman Empire, whether it be these trade guilds, whether it be a local government in the Roman Empire or elsewhere that puts undue pressure on Christians to abandon their faith, either in creed, in confession, or in practice. External persecution, or which is the second one is a much more subtle game. If it, if it is external, we see both of these at work in our passage. It's external opposition or internal, meaning from within the body of the church, internal compromise leading to internal corruption and a compromised, corrupt church has not only abandoned Jesus, but is a failure in his mandate to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. There is an inherent link between the doctrinal fidelity of a body of Christians and their effectiveness in the mission of Jesus Christ. We maybe say that a different way. We must hold fast to the faith once handed down to the saints while we contend for it. Jude chapter Jude. There's only one chapter. Jude 3, I believe. Contend for the faith once handed down to the saints. It's described in our passage as Jesus speaking to this church. It's described as my faith. That there is a faith that has a content that is derived from Jesus. When we talk about faith, it's one. Well, how we most often talk about is I have faith or I'm. All that kind of stuff is faith that's, that's trusting and, and believing upon the Lord as that is a good thing. But faith is also, like I just mentioned in that Jude passage, 
Faith is also a content of belief. What are we confessing as true? What is at the heart of our faith? It's not enough to say, I believe in Jesus, if the Jesus that you have conceived of is not the Jesus revealed in Scripture. That's what I'm getting at. We both need the confessing faith and we need the content of faith. This is one reason why we, we as a church, we do like we, we do the, the, uh, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the God and Father. Maker, the Almighty Maker of heavens and the earth, and Jesus Christ is the only begotten. That that there is a content, that these things are necessary. Not that you have to have it all hammered down, but that there's a necessary content to our faith. But there's also a necessary expression. But the, in Pergamum, they had experienced this external persecution. They are living at Satan's throne. Jesus says. Now, but let me back up one step. Now, G- Jesus writes to the angel of the church. This is how it works for all of the churches. The angel here is probably, probably could be translated messenger. It could be translated messenger. So it could be very well speaking of a human leader or human leadership within the church rather than some sort of guardian angel. But it's not entirely clear, so... And then there's this description of Jesus in verse 12. The words of him, that is Jesus, who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, sharp two-edged sword, I mentioned it. One place where that shows up is in Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. Another place that that shows up is in chapter 19. Which is just like Jesus comes to wreck shop. Almost literally. Um, that he's the rider on the white horse who is called faithful and true. His eyes are like flame of fire as many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And a robe dipped in blood. And the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen. And verse 15, from his mouth. This is the returning, conquering Lord Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. His sword that comes from his mouth, which is the word of God, is an implement of judgment. It's an implement of correction. Of carving down to the marrow and to the bone. And so his word comes to Pergamum, who has experienced intense external opposition because of their faithfulness. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne in. That throne is, that could be referring to all of those pagan deities. That could be referring to the imperial cult of Asia Minor that is centered in Pergamum. It could be some combination of the two or something else. But that Satan is there while they are there. And just to kind of back that up, verse 13 begins, I know where you dwell. And it closes with where Satan dwells. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. Outwardly confessing, they continue to confess the truth of the gospel, the truth of their faith. They continue in worship towards God, externally resisting external persecution. Even when one of their number, Antipas, my faithful witness... This is the word martyros. This is where we get the word martyr. If you have a King James, it says my faithful martyr, I believe. Who was killed among you where Satan dwells. 
Even as their blood is poured on the streets of Pergamum, they have not relinquished their confession of faith in the Lord Jesus. Even when they saw one of their own number, probably a leader, suffer because he would not bend the knee either to Zeus or to Caesar or whoever else, but only to Jesus as Lord. But maybe there's something I want you to see here. That the church at Pergamum dwells as the light of the world on the edge of darkness. And there is no quarter. There is no compromise between light and darkness. For a church like Pergamum living on the edge of the light edge of the light and the darkness, there will be explicit external conflict with the forces of Satan and of darkness. And I believe that's why Jesus here inspiring the, or revealing these things to uh, the Apostle John says, you dwell there where Satan dwells. There is a simultaneity. There is, there, there is a same place, same hour. That Satan is there doing what he is trying to do, destroying Jesus, destroy the faith in Christ, destroy Jesus' people, simply destroy the image bearers of God, destroy the good creation that God has made. Satan is up to his business. Is Jesus' church up to his? And I think that is a question that we have to ask ourselves before I press into really the problem in Pergamum. One, do we see the conflict before us? Two, are we aware that our enemy and our Lord's enemy is doing his business here and now? In Elgin, in South Carolina, in the United States of America. And either we can turn a blind eye, we can gripe, moan, complain, we can buckle down the hatches and try to wait it out, all of which we should forsake for Christ's sake, or we get to our Lord's work. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Preach the gospel promiscuously. Share it with everyone you know. Labor for those who are vulnerable, marginalized, weakened, sick, ill, orphaned, widowed. Labor for those who are on the edges. Continue to maintain both the content of faith and the living out of faith, even as it becomes more difficult to do so in our present context. Nowhere does Jesus give us the bailout phrase, Go make disciples of all nations unless it gets really tough. Unless they begin to celebrate everything my word tells you is evil and wicked and destructive. That's not what he says. And he has placed us just like he placed Antipas 
and the rest of the Christians in Pergamum, he placed them there then, that time, that place, that hour, to contend for the faith once handed down for the saints. And dear ones, whatever stage of life you are in today, he has placed you here and now to do the same. We have a holy obligation, not just entrusted to us by our Lord Jesus, which is enough. But we have a holy obligation from the brothers and sisters, the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. Who have run the race and fought the fight. And I think of them often. The ones that I knew personally, the ones that I only know through their books and elsewhere, their sermons. Their testimonies. But we have received a holy obligation from them. To not only to fight the fight, but to continue the fight. To take up the sword, which is not the sword of this world, but is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And to labor and to pray and to lay ourselves out for the kingdom of God in this world. Not to hide. Not to live in the shadows. Not to be content to live our faith quietly in our living rooms and within our sanctuaries. Because Jesus is the Lord of Lords. And the King of Kings. He is the Lord over Satan and his armies. He is the Lord over the United States of America. He is the Lord over the Supreme Court. He is Lord. And we must be his people who is ready to say it and to live it. Even when it costs us economically, it costs us socially, it costs us religiously, it might even cost us physically. But may we be ready like Antipas, the faithful witness. But Pergamum had a bigger problem than external pressure. But I have a few things against you. This, this is a pattern in these letters where Jesus comes to this church and says, I have these things against you. And it's a, it causes me to tremble. Think, what might our Lord say to us? You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. That might be some kind of an obscure reference to you. But this is the scandal of Peor, P-E-O-R, in Numbers chapter 25. If you remember the story of Balaam, he was this sort of pagan prophet who the Balak, the ruler of Moab, went to and said, come and curse the people of Israel so that I'll beat them and that, etc., They'll lose, I'll triumph, come curse them. And God would not allow Balaam to curse them. God is sovereign even over the pagan prophets. But Balaam counseled Balak, and, and it's testified in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16. He says, Behold these, the women of Moab, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, so that the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. So instead of going in and wiping out a people that the Lord had told them to wipe out, the Israelites left some people alive, 
And the, and the Balaam counseled those people, the ruler of those people, to send the women in. And there is a link both in Scripture as a whole and in our passage today between idolatry and sexual immorality. There is a link firmly in our text and firmly in the whole testimony of Scripture. There is a link between sexual immorality and idolatry. Sexual immorality, porneia as the word is, and and you can see what we get in our English language from that. It it is a multifaceted word that shows up in a lot of different ways. It's an umbrella that covers all sorts of different things. But there is a link. But Balaam uses sort of trickiness. An outward, external curse would not work. So corrupt people turn to corrupt the church. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before them so that they, they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. That they would, that is, that they would participate in their festivals. The pagan festivals, and oftentimes with pagan festivals, there was a celebration of sexual immorality in the middle of it. Promiscuity, homosexuality, all of these sorts of things were baked into their festivals for the pagan gods. It was baked into the Caesar cult, the imperial cult. And it was baked into what was happening in Pergamum. And so he's using this Old Testament reference to say, you also have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were probably a group that encouraged this. They show up earlier in chapter 2 as well. We don't know a whole lot about them. Just that they are a, if we might say, morally liberal group that comes into the church and says, the law of God no longer binds on you. You can do as you please. Do what feels right. You define what is good, what is right, what is up, what is down. You do you. And you notice that it is the teaching that leads into the living. That the church at Pergamum is not only being tempted to compromise, but they themselves are being compromised and therefore being corrupted. Not all of them, but within their body. And so that when Jesus says, therefore repent, Part of that repentance is to those who are teaching these things, saying you can go be a part of the pagan culture. You can go celebrate their feasts. You can walk in their pride parades. You can go do all of these things. You can plaster Marxist symbols all over you. Just identify with the culture around you. That's not the only way that we are invited to compromise. It goes, that's maybe to the left. We are also invited to compromise on the right, by the way, too. Particularly this season. Between Memorial Day, and say Memorial Day and Veterans Day. All good things that we should celebrate. But if our reverence... For the United States of America takes precedence over the kingdom of God. We have been compromised. If our longing to be identified, liked, and loved by the culture so much so that we are going to celebrate the wickedness that they celebrate, we have been compromised. Jesus calls us to a very narrow middle way. 
maybe not middle way, but a narrow way in between the two. We cannot celebrate the wickedness of this culture. We can't fall off into hate on the other end. We must walk the way of Jesus. Continuing to share the gospel. Continuing to be faithful to Him. Continuing to love our neighbors, whatever they're like. Serving them, showing them hospitality, welcoming them into our homes. But never compromising. That's possible, despite what our culture will tell you. But not only is the invitation to repent, and that is an invitation, or it's not an invitation really, it's a, it's a declaration, it is a command. Jesus' command is to repent. If you are walking on the road of compromise right now, either to the right or to the left, well, love is love. What does that even mean? God is love. He defines what it is. He defines how we live it out. He has creator rights over us. He can tell us, this is how you're made. This is how you're designed. This is what you are built for. This is what the word of God says. God has the right to do that and he does that. So the declaration to repent, the command to repent is not only to those who are practicing compromise and encouraging compromise from within the church. And if that's you, then the command stands. If you're instructing people within the church to compromise with the prevailing winds of this culture and its war against God in its multifaceted ways, then you need to repent. You need to drop that hat and run back to Jesus. For your own sake, but even, maybe not more so, but also for the sake of Jesus' bride. There are churches in these letters to the seven churches that become so corrupted, they so lose their way, that they're, they're spoken of not as those who are faithful congregations, but they're described as synagogues of Satan. And a corrupt church, no matter how much they float the name Jesus, if there's no content to it, A church that has so corrupted itself has grown apostate. That church may be called a synagogue of Satan. Because it's worse than an actual synagogue of Satan. Satanist church down the block. There's more there, but I don't have time. The command is to repent not only to those who are perpetrating these things, but also to the church that is indulging them. The command to repent is not only to those who are inviting compromise, living in compromise, looking more to the world for purpose, vision, truth than to the word of God and then bringing that back in the church. But it's also the command to repent is to the church that is indulging those people. That there is a holy responsibility. Holy responsibility. That is given to the church for discipline. Because our witness is at stake. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon. Everybody says, come Lord Jesus, come. But if we are compromising and indulging in compromise, we should be praying, hold on Jesus, hold on. 
give us time to repent. I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The same sword that is wielded in Revelation chapter 19 is the one that he is saying he's going to come wield and war with against the church. Contemplate that. The holiness of God is not something to be trifled with. I would ask as I tidy up. Well, before I do, let me finish the passage. So there's the threat being crushed from the outside. There's the threat of being corrupted from the inside. But Jesus says to the one who conquers. The one who endures to the end. The one who maintains faith in Christ, both individually and as a church. I will give the hidden manna. The manna was that which God gave them in the wilderness. I'll give them spiritual sustenance and I'll give them a white stone. A white stone served two purposes in the ancient world. One, the white stone was a reward for those who win a victory. They were given a white stone. It'd be similar to like if, you, if you're military people, you know, like a challenge coin, have it in your pocket. It would have a white stone and say, I won this. It would also be a declaration of acquittal. So if you went on trial for something and you were acquitted, you would have a white stone that would say, hey, I'm, I'm acquitted. And so for those who have won the victory, who have been acquitted in the Lord Jesus, will find spiritual satisfaction in the world to come. And they'll have a new name written on that white stone. A name given by the Lord Jesus. Our past is gone and new life ahead. Will we be a people crushed by persecution, external pressure? Will we be a people corrupted from internal compromise? Or will we be, by the power of God, a people who conquer, who live to see the victory of God? By his grace and for his glory. I would ask you to pray what I was going to close up as. Sage and I are going to the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting next week. And pray. Because these forces. Crushing. Corrupting compromise are not only at play within our local churches. It is at play in our convention. And this, as I'm told, this will be the largest convention since the mid-90s when there was a lot of controversy going on. But pray that we will be a people, that Southern Baptists will find our way by God's grace as we cling to Jesus, that we would find our way through the crushing pressure of this culture, but even through the more pressing danger right now for us the internal compromise of corruption. I would encourage you, if Jesus' command to repent applies to you, if you are far from God or if you are percolating, encouraging and indulging compromise with a pagan world, I would encourage you to repent. But what you need to know also is if you've never known Jesus, He is the friend of sinners. He wields that double-edged sword, but he is also the lamb who takes away the sins of the world.
And everyone who comes to him will be saved. And everyone who comes to him, he will not cast out. You are not too bad. You know you're not too good. So come. Trust him for the first time or for a fresh time. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. Would it settle upon hearts now as you see fit that it would accomplish your purpose in your will and your time and your way? Would you rescue those who are far from you today? Rescue those who are walking down the road of compromise. Perhaps personally, they're wrestling with their faith. And it seems so much easier to just go along with the flow. Would you give them grace that they might be planted upon the rock of the Lord Jesus? Would you give us guidance as a church as we navigate these days? Guidance to leadership and teaching. Lord, would you work wonders in our day that only you can do so that you will get the glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.